Good morning, Lakeview. What a wonderful exhortation for us this morning. Behold our God, behold our King. Of course, one of the principal means we do that is through the preaching of the Word, even as we have sung God's Word this morning. If you would turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 5, we are concluding our seven-part series that Brother Brother Al and I have done over the last seven weeks. Jesus Christ, the glory of God revealed. And incidentally, thank you for praying for Brother Al. Spoke to him yesterday, and he is doing so much better. And of course, you know he's tougher than nails. And and so uh, he has recovered quickly, and the Lord has been kind and gracious to him. And so thank you again for your prayers for him. Well, we're in Revelation 5 today, and for time's sake... Let us look at verses 11 to 13, which is kind of uh, the apex of this vision that John has that really begins in chapter 4 of Revelation. Then I looked and I heard about the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, that's exactly our desire this morning. May blessing and honor and glory and might be ascribed to the triune God and to the Lamb who was slain. And Father, this morning we would ask that you would incline our hearts toward this inerrant, infallible word that you would open our eyes to behold uh, the glory of the lamb who was slain but raised from the grave, that you would unite our hearts to fear, to be in awe, and Lord, that you would satisfy us this morning with your loving kindness that we know supremely in the Son and by the Spirit. We ask these things the matchless name of the lion and the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Chuck Colson, in his book, Kingdom in Conflicts, tells of his days in Richard Nixon's White House. He said, you know, one of the things about us is that we thought we were running the world. And one day uh, he had a meeting with Nixon and Henry Kissinger and their advisors, and Kissinger opened the meeting by saying, gentlemen, what we do today will determine the future history of the world. And Colson said, goose pimples kind of ran up my back, and I thought, I'm really important. I'm determining the future history of the world. But looking back, On that from prison, I realize how utterly arrogant 
and wrong it was. We were not determining the future history of the world. That was in God's hands. And we need to remember that. When we are tempted to to put too much trust uh, in human government. Or when human government leads us to fret. We also need to remember that when we perceive that evil is winning and that our conspiracies are coming true. We need to see history from an eternal perspective. And that is Revelation 5 in a nutshell. Now, for context, John is writing to seven harassed churches. Seven churches who were being tempted and persecuted. And they were drifting, in some cases, to compromise, to deal with the kind of pressure, the external pressure that they were facing, in particular to to worship Caesar. In fact, uh, those seven churches that are addressed in chapters 2 and 3 Um, They were the center points, the official centers, the the cities in which they were in for for emperor worship. In fact, John identifies with them in their suffering because he himself had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And and this is so important for us today, isn't it? Uh, We kind of feel that at times, government overreach and the pressures and the increasing pressures that come with that. As Carl Truman wrote this week, he said, the days when Christians could be both respected by their society and faithful to their beliefs are rapidly drawing to a close. The terms of membership in civic society and in the church are becoming increasingly antithetical. I believe that is a true and prophetic word. And that was the issue in the first century. In other words, we are drawing closer to what these churches in Asia Minor were experiencing. And in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we see uh, the struggle of these churches who were trying to live out their faith in an empire, a government, a culture, a world opposed. But in Revelation 4 and 5, and again, this is one vision. Chapter 5 is the second part of this vision. John pulls back the curtain so that we can see, so that we can recognize that what we perceive in the culture is not ultimate. Amen? In Revelation 4... John looks at the beginning of this vision, and a door is standing open in heaven. That's chapter 4, verse 1. And when he looks, he sees two things. Look in chapter 4. Look in verse 2. The first thing he sees, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Do you see that? A throne stood in heaven. What that is telling us is that sovereignty resides in heaven. This drives home where the real government of the world 
is located. And it's not located in D.C. It's not located in Montgomery. It's not located on earth. The second thing he sees here is that throne is occupied with one seated on the throne. There's someone presiding over the history of the earth. He's in control. And and the knowledge of the enthroned God would have certainly been a, a deep encouragement to a marginalized church in a world opposed. What this vision is telling us is that evil has a termination date. And that one day, the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth. The glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, for our purposes, chapter 5, Revelation 5, is the second part of our vision. Having been encouraged that there is one who sits upon the throne, the question arises uh, of the one who sits on the throne, um, is God really in control? Because it seems that the emperor is. At the time, the the emperor was Domitian. And so chapter 5 is a promise that there indeed is one who is on the throne and he has a plan for history. And that plan and purpose will not and cannot be thwarted. And that plan centers on a person. And that brings us to the first part of this passage. And we see... Up front, Jesus Christ is the central person of history. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And I think that's interesting that it was in his right hand. It was reserved for someone who was going to sit at his right hand, right? A scroll written within And on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, what is this scroll? Well, it contains the plan, the destiny of the world from God's sovereign perspective. And we're going to see that plan unfold in chapter 6 to 22, which we won't look at today. But it was summed up in chapter 4, verse 1, when it says that I will show you what must take place after this. And when the Lord shows him what must take place after this, it's in this scroll. And so this destiny that is going to be unfolded in this scroll concerns God's plan of judgment on his enemies and his judgment on the church's enemies and his plan of redemption. In other words, what's contained in this scroll are the contents concerning the kingdom of God. And yet it's sealed with seven seals. Now, we saw last week the number seven has the idea of completion and perfection. So this thing is completely sealed. And so what's written in in this scroll will not take place unless the scroll is opened. And not only that, both sides were written on. John is clear to make, he makes that very clear when he says, that it was, the scroll was written within and on the back. What's the point he's making there? In other words, there's nothing missing in this plan. 
This plan that's going to be unfolded in this scroll is comprehensive. There's nothing that's going to happen that's outside the sovereign plan of God. And we might add, including a pandemic. We need to understand that. Well, notice in verse 2, we see the angel's concern as a result of the comprehensive nature of this plan. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, the key word, and we've already sung about that this morning, the key word here is the word worthy. Here's the question. Who is worthy to open up this scroll? If no one is worthy to open up this scroll, then humanity, and in particular the church, is in a hopeless place. Well, notice in verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. No one was able to open the scroll because angels can't redeem because they're not human and all humans are sinners and stand under the judgment that's contained in this scroll. It has to be someone who is worthy. It has to be someone in particular who can conquer sin, death, the devil, and the world, as we'll see in this passage, which are all the enemies that are depicted in the book of the Revelation. Well, notice in verse 4, and I began to weep loudly. And it's always concerning when an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ weeps hopelessly. And that appears to be uh, the emotional state he's in. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So he is grieving because the resolution of history, the defeat of sin, death, and the devil, all seem to depend on someone opening this scroll. You know, what this means for John is that history will not unfold into, in the best interest of the church unless someone can open this scroll. There'll be no vindication for the martyrs and for the people of God who have suffered uh, because of persecution. There will be no judgment upon the enemies of God. There'll be no ultimate victory. And we can relate to that, can't we? Just a little bit. When we think about the, the, the secular turn in our culture. So when it comes to persecution, there's a continuum, okay? Uh, there's a continuum on the scale when it comes to persecution. On one end, where we appear to be, the church is, begins to be marginalized. And on the other end is full-blown persecution. Now, in America, uh, essentially, we're on the far end of that scale at this point. The church is being marginalized. I just saw this from the New York Times this week. Since August of 2003... New York Times says that construction on religious facilities in the U.S. has declined 66%. Two-thirds since August of 2003, and yet 
the construction of building uh, um, amusements, buildings for amusement and recreation have surged 42%. It tells you a little bit about our culture, where our values, where our, our hopes lie. Um, but that's a result of the church being marginalized. That's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum is full-blown persecution. I saw this on Friday, August the 6th. This was published in Nigeria. And we need to pray for the persecuted church. In the last 12 years, 43,000 Christians have been martyred in Nigeria. In the last 12 years, 18,500 Christians have been abducted and 17,500 churches attacked. And so it's grievous whether the church is being merely marginalized or the church is being persecuted full-blown, it's grievous. But the hope for John, the apostle, is our hope as well. Look with me in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. That, that is a truth that is binding, transcultural, transtemporal. This is a truth to every believer who is tempted to weep by what he or she sees in the world. Weep no more. Notice, behold. Weep no more, behold. What did we just sing about? Behold our God. That's the anecdote. Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. It's already happened. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Don't weep, behold. But before John is even given a chance to behold, he hears. He hears first about a lion who has already conquered. And it's only because he's conquered that this lion is worthy to open the scrolls. And, and the one who has conquered, the lion who has conquered, is none else than the one promised to and through Judah. This takes us all the way back to Genesis 49 when Jacob is blessing Judah, his son. He calls Judah a lion's cub. And he says the scepter, that is the ruling scepter, the king's scepter, will not depart from your line until you have the obedience of the nations. Of course, this was just a, a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of a promise that takes us all the way back to the mother promise of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, where the promise is that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And then as history progresses, we see that that seed will come through Abraham's line. And as history progresses, we see it will be through Isaac and then through Jacob and then through Judah. And then we learn in time with the promises and the covenant made with David that this promise would be fulfilled through David's offspring. But notice, this lion is more than a human. He is a human. He will be a human. Because that which is not assumed cannot be redeemed. The redeemer has to be a human. 
And, but he's more than a human. Notice it says he is the, this is remarkable language, the root of David. I thought he was a descendant of David. How can he be both root and shoot? Well, that takes us back to a promise in Isaiah 11 where it says a shoot from the stem of Jesse. Now, who is Jesse? That's not Bo and Luke's uncle. <laughs> Jesse is David's son or uh, David's father. And when that prophecy was made, Judah was in exile. They didn't have a king. But he says a stem, a shoot will arrive from the stump of Jesse. A, a, a stump is a dead tree. So this is a miracle. And this descendant's going to come, and he's going to usher in a new creation where the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, and the, and the lion will lay down with the lamb. But then, in verse 10 of that passage, this shoot from Jesse will be the root of Jesse. How can he be both shoot and root? It has to be one who is both God and man. And we're seeing this fulfilled in our very eyes, before our very eyes in Revelation chapter 5. And John says, this one, this God-man, this lion has conquered. But how he conquered is shocking. At this point, if we've never read Revelation 5, we expect military personnel to come on the scene and, and helicopters and bombers and infantry. That's not what we see. That brings us to the second part of this passage. And here's we learned that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are the central events of history. Look with me in verse 6. He says, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, remember the command was to behold. Now he's beholding. I saw, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, which evidently meant that he still had blood on him or he still had visible scars that would have been mortal wounds. It was a lamb who had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so instead of a lamb, or instead of a lion, he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The book of the Revelation's favorite term, favorite word for, for Jesus is lamb. In the book of the Revelation, the word lamb is used 28 times. Now, there's Old Testament background for it. When John is writing this, he also has his Old Testament in his hand. The background, we saw one of the, the backgrounds for this last Sunday night, was the lamb that was slain in every believer's home the night of the Passover. We saw last Sunday night that judgment came the night of the Passover to every home, to Egypt and to Israel. Israel did not avoid judgment that night. There was a corpse in every home. The death count was the same in every home, Egypt and Israel alike. The question was, who received the judgment? Would the firstborn son receive the judgment? 
or would the substitute, the Lamb of God, receive the judgment? And so this lamb is picking up that background. This is the true lamb. This is the lamb of God who brings about the ultimate exodus. Uh, The other background text for this terminology would have been Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. But I want you to note the paradox. This lamb appears to have been slain, and yet he's standing. Dead things don't stand. This is clearly depicting this lamb has been raised from the grave. Augustine said he endured death As a lamb, he devoured it as a lion. Isn't that a good word? And note, this lamb has seven horns. Now, again, the the number seven speaks to perfection, completion. Horns speak to power. This lamb, this lion, is omnipotent. He has all power. And notice as well, he has seven eyes. This speaks to his fullness of knowledge. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And he says, these this horns and these eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Of course, the seven spirits of God, I believe, is referring to the Holy Spirit who does the bidding of the Lamb, who administrates the all-sufficient work of the Lamb. But this spirit is sent out into all the earth. What does that mean? His victory has implications for you in Asia Minor. That's what he's telling the original seven churches. You're not outside the parameters of his victory. And this victory has implications for Lakeview Baptist Church. This victory has implications for the entire world. And there is another crucial implication here for the church in a world opposed. Even though Jesus' victory is unique, and it's one of a kind in the sense that he is our sin bearer. There is only one sin bearer. It's the Lamb of God. And there's only one resurrection from the grave, at least so far. His victory is one of a kind. And yet... In our struggle against the world, and it seems to be increasing, doesn't it? In our struggle against the world, we must remember that Jesus suffered at the hands of the world, but he triumphed over it. And his destiny is ours. Because we are in Christ. We are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. And this is why... Believers are described in Revelation 14, verses 4 and 5, as those who follow the Lamb. As the Lamb goes, so goes his people. Well, notice in verse 7. And he, that is this lion, who is also a lamb, he went and took the scroll from the right hand. Now, this is audacious, unless you're worthy. 
He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And so he walks right up to the enthroned one, surrounded by the four living creatures, and in view of the the 24 elders, who I believe are a superior rank of angels, and he takes the scroll, crucified yet now raised, the Lamb of God is now taking the reins of history. That's what's being depicted here. He is taking control of history, not any human government. And again, he's writing to seven churches who are under the thumb of Domitian, who was an evil emperor. And this is so important for every believer here to believe in all the mystery and all the perplexities and confusion of human history, of individual history and world history, where is the key to history? It's in this lamb. It's in this lion from the tribe of Judah. And I want you to notice when he takes that scroll, no one objects. Not the one who sits on the throne and not the creatures or the elders. And that brings us to the final part of this passage we see that the worship of Jesus Christ is the central purpose of history. The worship of Jesus Christ is the central purpose of history, and that is going to be fulfilled and achieved. By the way, uh, we're already a pilot project of that. When the church gathers to worship, we're already demonstrating what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth in a consummate way. Notice with me in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Notice, which are the prayers of the saints. And so with the handing of the scroll to the Lamb, we get a front row seat to one of the most glorious compelling scenes of universal adoration in history. And note the the lamb here is worshipped just as God who sits on the throne is worshipped in chapter 4. And God does not object. Even though he was the one, and Isaiah says, I will give my glory to no other. So this is ascribing deity to the lamb, the God-man. Uh, He reproves. And and note what the elders, again, likely a superior order of angels because the the angels are called elders in Isaiah 24, 23. Note what they're holding. A harp and golden bowls full of incense. Now, what are these golden bowls full of incense? Which are the prayers of the saints. That is glorious and beautiful. Again, we tend to think that the meetings in D.C. and the meetings in Montgomery are the real power centers of our country and of our state. That's not what's being indicated here. Here we learn it's not those meetings. It's the prayer meetings. It's the prayer meetings where the power of God is found. Clearly, the prayers here, in some mysterious fashion, though God is completely sovereign, 
have been used in an instrumental way in God's plan. The prayers of the saints are being offered as they worship the Lamb. Prayers matter. I'm convinced one of the reasons, and let me just speak to me about me, so lest no one think I'm picking on them. One of the reasons I don't pray as much as I should is because deep down I don't really believe, as I should, that my prayers matter. But if we believed what the Bible says about prayer, if we believed it and took it at face value, we would likely pray more than we do anything else. We'd probably spend more time in prayer than we do anything else. And in fact, it could be, and I know there are people who are providentially hindered, no guilt to appear on that, but it could be that our prayer meetings are as packed as our worship services on Sunday. If we really believed what the Bible says about prayer. Here, prayer has clearly been employed in God's purposes, in his glorious purposes. Now notice in verse 9, and they sang a new song. That's not just a song they just introduced. Uh, That's not what he's saying here. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for our God. So in chapter 4, they sang a song of creation. But this is a new song. And this reminds us that our Lord never stops providing us reasons to praise him, does he? He, he sits enthroned and he is active, giving us reasons daily to praise him. Now that word new is very hopeful in the book of Revelation. Because the people here are really struggling in the old created order, right? That word new is very hopeful. There's a promise of a new name, chapter 2, verse 17. There is a promise of a new Jerusalem, chapter 21, verse 2. There's the promise of a new heavens and a new earth, chapter 21, verse 1. And finally, the promise that God is going to make all things new, chapter 21, verse 5. Now, in the New Old Testament... The people of God would sing a new song. And you see this time and time again in the Psalms when the Lord intervenes, when the Lord saves, when the Lord delivers. Ironically, when John heard these heavenly beings sing, Worthy are you, he was hearing the same words that were used to worship Domitian, the emperor at the time who required worship, who who compelled worship, who did nothing for the people of God, who did nothing for the church except to enslave them. But this worthy one doesn't enslave. It says here, he ransoms. That is, he makes payment, he made payment to the justice of God which demanded death as the penalty for our sin. Indeed, it says he ransomed from, by his blood from every ethnic group. Again, notice in verse 9, every tribe and language, every, and people and nation. This is one of the reasons racism is not only sinful and wicked, it's insane. 
Because believers, every believer here will spend eternity with every other believer from every tribe and tongue. And that blessing comes the infinite price of our Redeemer. 1915, B.B. Warfield, the great scholar, was welcoming uh, the new students at Princeton Theological Seminary. He was in chapel, and he makes the point in this chapel that the name that the church has most esteemed for the Lord Jesus Christ, the most precious title for the church regarding Jesus, is the name Redeemer. And to make his point, he went to the hymn book. And he showed how so many of these hymns, 28 hymns in his hymn book, that explicitly center on Christ our Redeemer. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love for me. And then he showed how there were 25 hymns in his hymn book that speak of Christ's work of ransoming his people. But the reality is he didn't need a hymn book to do that, did he? All he needed was Revelation chapter 5. Chapter 5 here tells us that the redeeming work, the ransoming work of our Lord Jesus Christ it was the, is the center of heaven's worship, which means it has to be the center of the church's worship. Richard Phillips tells of when he first took his church as new pastor, he did a series on Christ the Redeemer. And after a few weeks, a disgruntled member came up to him and, and said, if you keep preaching on Christ's blood, you're going to ruin this church. Phillips looked at him. He said, you know, the central reason Jesus came was to shed his blood. And then he said to that man, preaching about Christ's blood may ruin your church, but it will not ruin Christ's church. Why? Because of what the blood of Christ has accomplished for us. Notice in verse 10, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, we don't have time to, to prove this. We will when we get in the book of Genesis in January. But Adam and Eve were the first priest kings. So when you see this language of kingdom of priests, this isn't new. Adam and Eve were the first priest kings, and they forfeited their commission by their sin. And then God called Israel to be his priest kings. Exodus 19, he made them a kingdom of priests. They forfeited their mandate. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They were exiled. Israel was cast out of the garden, and they were exiled. But as we saw last week in Hebrews 1, the true priest king has come. And he has come to restore this mandate for his church. And this is all the more remarkable when you consider that this kingdom consists completely, comprehensively, of those who were once outside the kingdom and undeserving to be in. We were, we were immoral. We were murderers in our hearts. We were outside the kingdom. But Paul says... You were washed. You were sanctified and justified. And so the kingdom of God has come in, you know, in an inaugurated way through the church of Jesus Christ. 
The church isn't the kingdom, but the kingdom is expressed, the power of the kingdom is expressed through his restored priest kings. Every redeemed believer as we proclaim that gospel. And this is what they're worshiping. This is why they're worshiping, rather. And notice how this worship begets worship. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. We get to experience this for eternity, by the way. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power. And I want you to notice seven expressions here. Um, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. First word here is worthy. But he's building to a crescendo here. Uh, notice in 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So the whole created order at this point is worshiping. You know, when humankind sinned against God in Adam, all creation came under the curse. One day that curse is going to be removed when every one of God's people are redeemed. And so creation is joining in the praise of Jesus as Redeemer. And Revelation 4 and 5 become the lens by which you view not only the rest of the book of the Revelation, but the rest of your life. It becomes the lens by which we view history, by which we view pandemics. Revelation 4 and 5 are the lens. Is this a timely text? Couldn't have planned this. I think so. There's so much uncertainty. There's so much chaos in the air. This is a word to us. So what is the point of Revelation 5 for us? Notice there's no commands here. Uh, this, this, this text doesn't give us commands to obey. It gives us a, a lamb to behold. No commands here, but notice, it's to remind us that the one who is on the throne and his purpose in history is to exalt the lamb. There's one on the throne, his purpose is to exalt the lamb, and there's nothing going to thwart that. Nothing can stop that. Second, John shows all marginalized believers. Do you feel marginalized sometimes? He shows all marginalized believers, all marginalized churches in history, that those who worship the Lamb are a part of an innumerable multitude. You're not alone. There's a innumerable multitude who worship the Lamb with you. And finally, that the Lamb, by taking that scroll, by his victory... The reality that he has conquered, the lamb has taken control of the world's destiny. No reason to fret. Of course, this chapter most directly applies to the church. I've not heard a said about anyone here at Lakeview, thankfully. But I have heard from friends and even family that there are Christians who are in panic mode 
because of what's going on in our culture. Some are upset no one's wearing a mask. Others are upset that everybody's wearing a mask. Some are upset that no one, uh, everyone's not vaccinated. And some people are upset that everybody's vaccinated. I mean, it's just we're panic mode. And I want to say, read Revelation 5. There is one who has conquered, and your panicking reflects you have gospel amnesia. So this is a primary word to every believer. Amen. But let me close with a word to the unbelievers here. We don't look down on unbelievers. That was us. We've all been there. But here's the good news. There is absolutely nothing that you have done in your past or even in your present that disqualifies you from being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. All you have to do is turn and trust in Him. Commit your life to the one who has already conquered. And then you can join all the believers at Lakeview and all the 24 elders and the myriad of creatures singing the new song of the Lamb. I want to give you an opportunity to do that as, the, as Adam and the praise team comes forward. Uh, we're going to have uh, pastors here at the end of the aisle. Maybe you have questions about what that means to follow the Lamb, to, to repent of your sins, uh, to trust in Christ. We want to give you that opportunity as we stand and as we sing.